So many clients have not worked with a law firm before. They're not here. They're not watching us work. Who knows what's in their mind? Business leaders are taught to think big picture. But if you're a lawyer, you know devil's in the details. We want to think hard about how we can make sure they see what we're doing. And it's all meant to generate this higher level of appreciation among them so that they will refer us business going forward. You're listening to Personal Injury Marketing Mastermind, the show where elite personal injury attorneys and leading edge marketers give you exclusive access to growth strategies for your firm. James Farron runs North Carolina's most prominent personal injury practice, which has recovered over a billion dollars for his clients. He's meticulous, always looking for ways to make his firm better, faster, and more efficient. That led him to found GrowPath, which creates case management and client intake software made specifically for plaintiff firms. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. Being at the forefront of marketing is all about understanding people. So let's get to know our guest. Here's James Farron, president of the law offices of James Scott Farron and CEO of GrowPath. Well, my dad was uh, in an international business. He was a bit of a, a role model for me. So I think I always saw the business values being exemplified by him. And, and so that, it just felt like that was a, an important career. And so when I found myself going to law school, I, I kind of went by default. I, I didn't know what I was going to do with a law degree. I just couldn't figure out what to do. And I, I went there almost like a fish out of water. And I think it was just a matter of time before I think I was able to pull in the genetics of a business person into my life and add it to the the practice of uh, law, which I think has served us pretty well. Absolutely. So you got kind of that immersion from home and, and we're just entrepreneur by nature. You know, I kind of want to jump over to you're known around the Carolinas for your TV ads that have starred Robert Vaughn, Eric Pierpoint, and Judge Joe Brown. Tell me the story of how those started and how they evolved into a key part of your business strategy. Well, I think when I decided I was going to be a personal injury attorney, it seemed to me that the big time was going to be people who were on TV. That seemed to be uh, how you got a lot of cases, how you got some notoriety. So I think I was always interested in going in that direction. So when I had early in my career, a, a big uh, results, big settlement, I decided to plow that money into a TV campaign. And I thought that the Market Masters campaign, which is the one that we used, was the most uh, innovative. I liked it because I thought it looked professional, really well polished. And frankly, I didn't have to be on the ads myself. I'm not that great of an actor. And I wouldn't want to be bothered in restaurants by people having seen my face on TV. So it, it's allowed me to live a life of an anonymity and, and yet take advantage of the benefits of their really professional, polished campaigns. And so we started that, that back over 20 years ago, and the commercials kind of were an immediate hit, took off, built us some, some notoriety. And then, of course, that led to the necessity of really getting good at running our law firm as a business, because suddenly we're dealing with questions of scale, lots of cases, and, and, and having to have good technology. So by going on TV, I, I don't know that I played it all out in my head at the time, but that led to you know lots of cases and thus led to the need to become really effective at running operations in a strong business-like manner. Yeah, and I've got a couple follow-up questions on there. So I, I'm more of a digital marketing guy and many of our clients do TV. And I've always wondered, you know, what are some of the foundational 
recommendations when it comes to TV in terms of, you know, minimum, minimum budget to even consider it just some of the basics. And I have always heard you've got to, you got to advertise during the news and sports because that's where people watch live TV. You know, what are just some, some general advice to those looking to maybe do TV in today's time period? Well, it's still an effective medium. We've uh, been doing it for a long time. Uh, I'd say the amount that you need to spend depends on the size of the market, obviously. We like being in the top three to five positions in, in the market, because if you're pretty far down the list, you just don't get enough visibility and your, your message is drowned out. And so I think that to be effective, you have to sort of they say, go big or go home and be a strong player there. I'm a big believer. I think TV is a direct response vehicle for at least for us. We're, we're looking for people who have been hurt. Most people, they've never thought about who their lawyer is going to be if, you know, if they happen to get involved in a serious wreck and need a lawyer. A lot of people have not thought who who that person's going to be in advance. So what we want to do is catch people in the moment when they're in need. And we do that by running lots of daytime TV commercials. Now, there's other schools of thought, which is go to to more of a branding approach and run commercials, different times of day, evening news. I have found that less cost effective for direct response. I'm a big believer in just running on the air broadcast commercials. Uh, during the day in heavy frequency. That's a formula that's expensive, but it does work. And I think it leads, if you can afford to do it, it can lead to a good number of cases on an effective, cost-effective basis. The problem is if you don't have that kind of money to spend and you can't be in the top echelon in a market, well, then you've got to go and look into other places where you can still get cases, but not as big of a budget commitment. And, And I will say that, of course, we are living in an era of a gradual erosion of broadcast TV, streaming devices, lots of other ways of getting cases, which are becoming increasingly important. I still think TV works well, but play it out 10, 20 years, probably much less so. Yeah, and you know, that's interesting. I've, I've always heard of TV as a branding play. I've never really heard of it as a direct response, but uh, play. And I think maybe those are some of the individuals that are less experienced in the medium compared to yourself and you can see the true impact of advertising during the day. And I, I myself, even though we do SEO, I'm an omni-channel, multi-channel approach to advertising. I think it's important to power that overall flywheel, you know, whether it's the top of funnel strategy or middle or bottom, I think they all kind of complement each other. And if you're seen multiple times, you have a greater likelihood of converting that lead. Well, I will say TV is also a branding play. You're you're wanting to get people inculcate your name in there. Our belief is they are likely to call you if they already know the brand and then they see the ad when they're in a time of need and when they're thinking about what should we do. That's my belief. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I see, too, just from an SEO perspective that you know, if your brand's stronger, even if you're not ranking number one, you may capture the, the click-through just because they recognize the brand or Google ads or local SEO, any of those mediums and those channels. Yeah. And I think a real point of emphasis for us is creating a culture where we attract people who are not only good at what they do, but share common values. And it's my experience that if we have a strong culture, a well-defined culture, and we attract people who fit in that culture, they tend to be happy and productive and thus more likely to stick around. So I think that it becomes very closely tied to business principles as having a strong, strong culture. And I think I see myself as 
that, that being one of my primary responsibilities is defining the culture and then enforcing it and cheering it on and rewarding people for acting appropriately. So I, I think that gives me great joy and satisfaction. And I think there's a huge payoff. And you know, again, when you have a couple hundred people working for you, you can't be replacing too many. You don't want to lose any superstars. You want to be replacing people too often, or it's just going to be impossible to manage. So having a strong culture is really a, a key to cohesion. I love that. Are there certain things that you look for? Are you involved in maybe the final hiring stage? Do you do personality assessments to see if they fit within a particular, um, you know, there's DISC and predictive index and strength finders. What are some of those things that you do to see, you know, when you're going to hire someone new, if they're, if they're going to be the right fit? We've used some of those profiles in the past with varying degrees of success. A lot depends on the position. The thing that we have done is we've actually written a book I call it the JSF Way. It's got 24 behaviors, pay attention to detail, with, that I think defines the model employee. And so we have defined this culture and then we talk about it all the time and we try to hire based on it. So we'll send prospective employees this PDF of these behaviors and ask which of them resonate. So I guess rather than do a personality test, maybe through behavioral questions and otherwise, our HR department and all of our interviewers are screening to see not only do people have the technical ability to be good at what they do, but do they fit in this mold? Are they one of our tribe? And I think by having our behaviors, which I found values to be too amorphous and ambiguous, not what does quality mean or professionalism? I, you know, I, I don't know. But by defining these values in terms of behaviors, it's pretty easy to recognize if somebody is uh, a good fit or not. And so that's more than anything, I think, what we, we look for. I myself will do some interviews, but that tends to be for a, a high-level position. I'm a big believer in having at least two people in on final interviews so that, to minimize the, you know, we all make mistakes and we all have biases and you know, sometimes we can be swayed by a, just someone we like. Uh, I think having a couple, at least two people in the room for final decisions reduces the risk of uh, bias and making an error that way. That and, and knowing what we're looking for in terms of our behaviors are the two things that I think are, uh, help us in our hiring. North Carolina is one of several states where direct mail advertising is not restricted. I wanted to know, how does James' team use direct mail? And how do they see the value of that channel compared to others? Yeah, uh, we use it and like it very much. As you mentioned, it's not available for lawyers in, in all jurisdictions. Some places, the public records are redacted so that you can't get the information. Others, there are waiting lists, or ethical requirements that, that, that practically make it impossible. But in our state, North Carolina, it is permissible and we've used it aggressively. We get some of our best cases from, from direct mail. We have dozens of different pieces that we send out to people depending on what type of injury they may have suffered, what kind of accident they've been in. We, we will FedEx people a huge package of pages and pages of information for, for if we think it's a high quality case or potentially high value case. So we have a whole bunch of different packages that we will send to people depending on the situation 
therein, try to customize it as much as possible. Uh, what I like doing is A-B testing. We'll try a different creative approach to a piece uh, and send it to half half the people over time and then see which which of our two pieces tends to get the best response. It's fun to constantly iterate and create more impactful pieces. And as you, as you mentioned earlier, the auto marketing is synergistic. If we're well-branded on TV, people are going to be more likely to search for us on, on the web. And they're also more likely to respond to our direct mail package. So I, I, I like it uh, very much. I think it's, it's, a, it's a great way of getting cases. Mm -hmm. If you put a lot of time and energy into it, it can have great, 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 great dividends. Shifting over, you have perhaps one of the most famous cases, you know, a class action lawsuit for about 18,000 African-American farmers who were discriminated against by the USDA. You and your team ended up winning $1.25 billion for that case. Um, you know, how did marketing and outreach play a role in that outcome? And then, you know, how could this approach change the landscape for class action suits? Well, that case, it's sort of seems to me that the work that you do, you do a good job at it, it sort of prepares you, though you may not be aware of it, for another challenge. So the fact that we had run a, a high volume operation, advertised well, had developed all these systems and ways of processing large numbers of cases had sort of prepared us for this opportunity. And it led someone to approach us with the chance to get involved in the, this black farmers discrimination litigation fairly early on. We got involved, took a risk, a real risk, that you know, because there was no guarantee that a law would be passed that would allow these claimants to go forward with their claims. But we, we decided we were going to go, go for it because the cause seemed so noble. The farmers had really been discriminated, treated poorly by the, their government, uh, our government, for many years. And it was an opportunity to sort of prove ourselves on a national stage and to, you know, really stretch ourselves and try to take on something bigger than we've ever done before and be part of a historic case. So for those reasons, we got into the case. It called upon our logistics skills uh, in, in organizing things. We had, yeah, there were 18,000 people who we ended up helping with other firms in the claims process, but there were 90,000 potential claimants out there, uh, there. So there was a ton of people that we had to communicate with, put in, our, in a database, keep abreast of developments in the case. So it, it caused Eric Sanchez, who again is my right-hand person, sort of the, the technology guy at our firm, he, he he had to figure out how to manage this case and to communicate effectively with all these people. And so he drew the lessons that he we had learned over the years in, in doing that. And it, it actually caused him to come up with some ideas for a new software that would enable us to do even better uh, after that case resolved. I think he saw he had to he saw the limitations of our existing software and had to sort of make it work with all sorts of workarounds and teaching himself access programming. It was just a whole Herculean task that he had to take on. And it made him think when that was over with, he could build something better just to run our law firm with. So was that the discovery of GrowPath? Is that how it, it kind of formed into its own uh, entity? Yeah, that was the inspiration for GrowPath. He, he thought coming out of it, we're done. We finally, we got this case behind us. I found it, this is Eric speaking, I found it frustrating to have to use this software that really didn't work optimally. He surveyed the market to see if there was something out there that we thought would be better. He, he thought, no, we really want to build something for all of our needs. And so he, he, we gave him a budget and a team of developers and, and they built 
this GrowPath software for just for our firm, just so that we could run better. And they, after a couple of years, we launched, we switched over, we went uh, over the course of a weekend, we moved all our data into GrowPath. We started using it. And we found that as we proceeded, people at our law firm liked it. Their work was more efficient, more effective. I liked it because I could see that our average case ages were coming down because we were able to spot bottlenecks very easily. We were able to work more efficiently and effectively. And so we saw case values going up or holding and, and velocity or case resolution speed going down significantly. And so I was really pleased with it. I had some employees say, if you took away growth, it would break my heart. So we, we found uh, that it was, we thought we had a good thing. And so that, that led us later on to open it up and market it to, to other personal injury law firms as well. There's a ton of options out there for case management software. So I asked James, what sets GrowPath apart from the others? Well, I'll speak for myself. What I, I like is running the firm. We have thousands of cases. I want to be able to look at a glance and see what each person who, who's got case responsibility is, is doing, what's overdue. We have matter trackers that we're able to customize and set up. So it's very easy to see who's doing what, or more importantly, who's got a lot of things backed up. And I can dive into the cases and see why. So it, 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 I like that. I also like reporting because I'm able to get email alerts whenever a case of a particular magnitude comes in or an intake comes in and I'm able to be alerted to it. So I, there are just an unbelievable amount of reports that I can customize and get delivered to me by email or any way I, I prefer. I don't like looking at dashboards personally, so I prefer e uh, PDFs and emails sent to me. Uh, so that's how I like to see my, my, my data. And so I get it sent to me the way I, I like it. Lawyers like that they can dictate into it with, a, with an ex Chrome extension. And they don't, so it makes them more efficient uh, instead of having to type out all the notes. If they want to type it, they can. But for a lot of people, it's much easier just to dictate into the software. It's good stuff. It's, it's cool. We, we've, we really, you know, we like it. We use it ourselves. It, it's it's fun because Eric, the guy, the guy who started GrowPath, he's also in, still involved in our law firm operations. So he's constantly improving the product based on, you know, we have our, our own Skunkworks project, which is our law firm, right? We see things that we can do more efficiently and better. So he's constantly uh, developing the software. We don't have to wait on a bunch of people in, in the foreign country or, you know, to put us in a in their queue and, and respond to our development requests, we're able to, to move really quickly. And, and so anyway, it's been really great. That, I think the last thing I'll say is that, uh, that I've really seen the benefit of is during the pandemic where we had to deploy so much of our workforce remotely, you know, having cloud-based software certainly is an advantage, but GrowPath was super helpful. And here's why we have in it a productivity tool which allows us to measure in each paralegal attorney, whoever we want to measure and measure their performance. And what we do is we measure their performance against themselves in many instances. And so we were able to see what they would do pre-pandemic. And then after the pandemic, when we switched, when they're working from home, we could go in and say, well, here's what they did in the last two months per day, how many emails, how much screen time, they, you know, all sorts of stuff. And we were able to establish that as a baseline and then compare it with what they were doing from home. And that gave me a lot of confidence. I could, I, you know, there's some people we saw who were clearly goofing off. They, they were 
not doing much for a few hours, their productivity was off, we able to identify that, get rid of them. As a, as a law firm owner and manager with hundreds of people, and especially if you deploy remotely, tremendous peace of mind and managerial power by knowing who's being naughty and who's being nice. And we found 95% of our employees were able to work effectively and productively from home. But I was sure glad to be able to measure that and and validate it as opposed to just take someone's word for it and to, to find, you know, the people who weren't working out so well and may, either making them come back to the office or uh, or terminating them. So that, again, that was just another benefit for that since you asked. Well, I absolutely love that because I think that most remote companies will just look at utilization and, and time tracking. I really feel that that's flawed because one person could be more efficient than another person. You know, I, I like the fact that you're looking at the outcomes and the screen time and the things, the actions that they're taking just significantly more valuable. And I, I can imagine that when you went to remote, when the pandemic hit, that you guys were set up in, in an advantageous way, just having that already established. Yeah. And the key thing is anything that was being done in the software, which for our workers working on the cases, that most everything can be measured and that we can, and we can design that as the basis of our productivity measures. So the productivity measures are real based on what we value as important. I love that. And, you know, you, you talk a lot about data and running a data-driven business, you know, just, just top level, you know, what are some of the metrics that personal injury lawyers should pay attention to? I'm a big believer in analyzing the fees per month. A lot of times lawyers will look at on a particular case, how much the fee you know, was going to be, which is a very you know, important measure. You, you want to compare your marketing costs versus your revenue. So the, you know, the return on that return on investment is, is an important analysis, but I like to go a little farther and also figure out how long it took to get that result. So if I can get a $2,000 fee in six months, that may be better than a $3,000 fee in 12 months, especially if I'm able to replace that $2,000 fee with another one after six months. So it's not, it, it's not just the amount of the fee, but it's the velocity that I like to measure. So I look for practice areas where, we can, where our fee per month hits a certain level, when the fee per month dips below a certain level, I think, well, those are cases that are not worth taking on anymore. So that's, you know, I, I think I emphasize the, those fees per month more than some other law firm leaders. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to slightly get this off here. So I apologize to anyone listening, but uh, so that, that reminds me of Jay Abraham. He always talks about, you know, the, the three ways of generating more revenue. One, you sell more, or you increase your fees. And then the third one that he talks about is velocity is, is more quickly. Yeah. And I think I posit that amongst attorneys and law firms, the velocity is completely underappreciated and it's, it's uh, powerful. The effect can be really powerful if you could, and clients love it. They, they love getting their, you know, it's, we're not compromising the value of the case. We're looking at reducing waste or delays that add nothing to the value of the case, time on desk, where the file's just sitting on the desk, not uh, advancing. And so without compromising the value of the case, if we can shave two or three months off of it versus our competitors, our clients are going to be ecstatic and, and, and uh, satisfied. It, value, 
it, it matters a lot to our clients and I think it, it should matter a lot to us. The other thing that you know we think about a lot is trying to cre- cultivate a client experience that is sure to lead to referrals. Uh, that, that is, that's another great way of uh, building a business, right? Is generating a strong army of, refer- of satisfied people who are willing to refer cases to you. And I think we've w- thought about uh, ways over the years to be intentional about our client experience. How, how we conduct a dispersal, it's carefully orchestrated. Very, the ways we talk to clients at various stages in the case, very, very carefully orchestrated. I have a three-person communications training department who listen to calls and coach people on their language and, and how they communicated with clients. Why? So that we can do a better job at expressing ourselves. And that's important because I think there's a direct correlation between how we communicate and how our clients perceive our law firm. When we first started doing this, we wanted to please clients, but we kind of just hoped that they would appreciate us. And over time, we have thought hard about what messages we need to communicate to show our clients what we've been up against and what we're able to accomplish for them so that their impression is not accidental. So many clients have have not worked with a law firm before. They're not here. They're not watching us work. Who knows what's in their mind? And if they're satisfied at the end, and so we we want to think hard about how we can make sure they see what we're doing, and it's all meant to generate this higher level of appreciation among them, so that they will refer us business going forward. I think that's super smart, and and I think so many people work so incredibly hard to get the lead that they don't nurture it and turn those clients into the evangelist for those referrals. So I think that's incredibly powerful and super smart. And yeah, it just kind of compounds with those referrals. And the the other question I, you kind of triggered me when you said, you said eliminate waste and lean, you know, the kind of that six Sigma philosophy, and that's a bit different than other firms and just eliminating some of the unnecessary steps to make the case settle a little bit more quickly on that front. Is there something that comes to mind in terms of something maybe that you've eliminated to shorten the that time frame, or uh, could you speak to just eliminating waste a little bit more? Yeah, well, I've read books on Toyota manufacturing principles, and uh, I thought that they they made a lot of sense. We would try to apply them to the law firm. I think what we found is there are a couple areas that can create a lot of delay, unnecessary delay in the case. One is a mistake early on can cause a case. You know, whether you don't identify the right insurance policies or miss a lien or something like that, or you miss a medical provider can cause, you know, you think you've got all the records and bills in and you don't, and now you have to go back to square one and get the, the one that you missed, or if it can hold up a case uh, where it'll be stuck in the trust account. You can't disperse the funds because they're just things that haven't been done. So anyway, mistakes early on can, can delay things. So I think one, we want to pay real careful attention to getting things right the first time so that we don't end up creating a backlog down the road. The other thing that, w- that I think was a, a big lesson for me is, and this came out of these, these lean studies, uh, th- that a lot of times we create delays by batching our work. And I must confess, I'm a, you know by nature a habitual batcher. I used to, when I was doing all, all of this myself, I would send demands out on a Friday. And so they you know during the week, they would come in. I had other stuff to do. And I knew Friday morning was when I would get there. Review, review the medical records and bills, dictate the demands and get them out the, get them out the door. 
you know, that is not lean and it all causes some waste and delay because what happens if a file is ready to go out on Monday and just is waiting for me to get to it on Friday. And so it's better in a perfect world if you can reduce that time on desk. Uh, and so if we, what we try to do is get our attorneys and to avoid batch work wherever possible and deal with things as soon as possible. And so that requires some rewiring of habits, trying to create a mentality where delay hurts. And so batch work is much slower. That was a sort of a surprise to me. It's something I had to learn from reading these Toyota principles. Yeah, and, I, and I've read the, the Toyota principles too. And, you know, one of the things that just completely, I've, I've heard just so frequently the, the exact opposite, right? Like you want a batch and it makes me think of just email. So, so let's just take email because that could be a, an incredible time waster. You know, is that a situation where you still want to maybe, hey, only answer emails from eight to nine in the morning or, or is it an efficient thing for customer service where you're getting back to maybe the client immediately? What's your thoughts on just email as it comes to batching versus, you know, maybe when they're ready for a response? Well, I depend on the type of email. First of all, we can't be at our desks the whole time. And so emails are going to come in and we're, we're going to, they're going to pile up. I, I like having a quick scan to see if, if I can hit delete, <laughs> if it's something that I can deal with later. And if it's something that's a, a, a client request that will slow down a case, I'd like to be able to deal with that as quickly as possible. So if an adjuster has sent me some information, just because my name's on the letterhead and it's not a case that I handle, it needs to be routed somewhere else. To me, that's a priority to figure out who that needs to go to immediately so that they can deal with it. It doesn't do much good to, to lose a day to get to that. So I try, personally, I try to, batch where I can, but also identifies uh, time-sensitive and uh, matters that can be dealt with quickly. But the email management is, well, that's hard, right? We get bombarded with so much all the time. It's hard to keep track. Of. And uh, so I, I'm sympathetic to the temptation because if we don't do some of that, we'll, all we'll be doing is being chained to our desk or mobile device uh, responding to emails. And that's it's hard to have creative time and you know meeting time when you're that way. So uh, I think triaging the, the email and figuring out is it delete, deal with later, like in my next batch or something that can be immediately passed on to someone else. Yeah, like that the Eisenhower matrix, you know, urgent, important, uh, urgent, you know, not important. It makes me think of all those types of things. And I, I guess the big takeaway too is for many executives, they should probably have an executive assistant that, that could assist with those types of things on the non-essentials uh, travel, just general things. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's one of the joys of being in our position, right? When you can run an organization and you have, I have all these people working with you, you get the help you need on clerical stuff. James, we've talked about so many wonderful things when it comes to just operation, software, technology, marketing. Now I've got one final question here. You know, what's next for James Farron? Wow. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I still like what I'm doing. I enjoy the challenge of growing the firm. I, I guess at this point, I don't have to work, but I, I choose to work because I like it so much. I like working with quality people. I like building something great. For me, one of the big challenges will be trying to create an entity that is successful even when I'm not at the helm running it day to day. And so I'm thinking about how to 
create another generation of leaders and mentor them and empower them so that hopefully they can take this great thing that we've built and extend it. Remarkable advice here. What strikes me most is James' attention to detail on something like how his intake team communicates, having someone work with them to create a cohesive message and a consistent experience across their clientele. I'd like to thank James Farron from the law offices of James Farron and GrowPath for sharing his story with us. And I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Marketing Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing. <laughs>